You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today we have a unique opportunity and a special guest. We have Father Andriy Zelensky, a Jesuit who is a chaplain in the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Father, thank you for being on The Spear. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking your background. Before you went into the Armed Forces, how did you wind up as a Jesuit priest? be a priest and to be a Jesuit, it's always about a vocation. Vocation is always about, I call it mission attraction, to be attracted by a mission. And uh, the Society of Jesus has a very special mission. And it's a long lasting mission. It's always an adventure. When we talk about a spiritual adventure, when we talk about an adventure that requires a spirit, a human courage, a strong, so to say, uh, will, and also a generous heart, committed dedication, uh, commitment. Well, we talk about a Jesuit vocation. So it was very attractive to me. I mean, the mission that the Society of Jesus pursues. And it was something I really enjoyed. I mean, the whole process of becoming a member of the Society of Jesus, the whole formation the Jesuits offer, and once again, to become a part of a great mission. This looks attractive. The Jesuits were founded in the 1400s by Ignatius of Loyola, who was a soldier himself. Did that play a role in your becoming a chaplain in the Ukrainian military? What really played a role uh, was the spirituality of St. Ignatius. Ignatian spirituality is about a fight, I usually say. For St. Ignatius, his battlefield changed. His heart became a battlefield for a young knight who decided to, to be a, really a warrior. I usually say that St. Ignatius was a warrior, but a spiritual one. A warrior who was trying to, to decipher a human heart, to understand uh, where the enemy is. Ignatian spirituality requires a certain tactics of combat, of an inner combat. It also helps to provide a real strategy for personal development. So uh, I think all of those ideas were very attractive to me. And it's also about spirituality as a contact with reality. I usually say that for a military chaplain, to be an efficient professional military chaplain, he needs to be a warrior and a very spiritual person. 
And to be a spiritual man, to me, it's to be open to reality, to seek the truth, to, to, to defend justice. So it's about a battle, but it's when a human heart beca- becomes a battlefield. When did you take your final vows to enter the society or to, to finish your process into the society? The process in the Society of Jesus never ends. It's called continuous and ongoing formation. But it's very important for, uh, for us today, for the people of the 21st century, to understand that we are on a journey. An important characteristics or characteristic of Jesuit spirituality, you're always becoming someone. I usually say that to be a human being, you must become yourself. You must become a human person. And this requires, requires an ongoing formation. I graduated from three universities, uh, did philosophy in the United States, then theology in Rome, and then political science in Ukraine. But I usually say that the greatest academies of my life were spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius and the battlefield. When did you join the Ukrainian Armed Forces, Father? I became a military chaplain or a priest who was offering pastoral care for the military in 2006. And this experience started from the Army Academy of Ukraine in the city of Lviv, where a group of young chaplains were trying to systematize the whole pastoral care in the Ukrainian armed forces. In those days, we still didn't have an institutional design for this, past- for this pastoral care. So we were at the beginning, and in those days, I managed to, to get to know so many then young cadets who later on became officers, well, even commanding officers, commanders in the Ukrainian, in different Ukrainian units, but I remember them still as young cadets. And it was one of the most maybe important, most significant experience in my life. I usually say that military chaplaincy appeared in my life. It was one of the greatest surprises. I usually introduce myself as a person who comes from the world of books, from an academic environment. Uh, and I do teach special political science even today at the Ukrainian Catholic University and many other things elsewhere. But chaplaincy became a university for me. So it was since 2006 that I am in this field. And then 2014, 2014, when the Russian aggression against Ukraine started. So I, I became the one, the first officially admitted to the war zone military chaplain in the Ukrainian armed forces. Then, of course, the institution of military chaplaincy in Ukrainian armed forces started to develop. And uh, there appeared a position called military chaplain. But in those days, in 2016, military chaplains were civilian workers of the armed forces. And it was only since last year, when the proper legislation was passed by the Ukrainian parliament, that uh, we in the Ukrainian armed forces got military military chaplains uh, to become officers. For listeners that aren't familiar, in 2014, what happened and where did you go as the first military chaplain allowed to the war zone? As you might have heard, it was 2013 that the Revolution of Dignity happened in Ukraine when the Ukrainian people decided to get rid of a corrupt president who defended Russian interests in Ukraine more than, U- than the interests of Ukrainian people. And afterwards, as a result, uh, we had the Crimea being annexed by the Russian troops and the Russian troops appeared in the eastern regions of Ukraine. We speak about Donetsk, the region of Donetsk and Luhansk, and uh, 7% of our territory was occupied by the Russian troops. So that's how the Russian aggression against Ukraine began, of course. So uh, in those days, 2014, summer, June of 2014, 
I became one of the first chaplains uh, present in that zone, although there was a time when many priests and pastors offered their service on a voluntary basis. So they would go to the war zone to offer their service, and then they would go back to their parishes, but they would provide for the army the, the, the essentials that they, they needed, but uh, also the, the spiritual care. We should keep in mind that Ukraine is a very, one could say, religious society that is to say that the religion or the church is one is among one of most trusted social institutes the polls tell us about 60 to 70 percent of trust so 60 to 70 percent of our population trust a church any any kind of denomination but uh, it's about the needs it's about the needs of people and when we talk about the military so they reflect the same the same needs that's how it started in 2014 in Donbass, in the trenches of Donbass, I usually say that if taken all together, my experience in war zone, so the time spent in trenches would be more than three years. Three years in the trenches. What sort of ministerial care were you providing in that, we'll say the first six months? Everything was new to us in 2014. I used to consider Ukraine as one of the most peaceful nations in the world. We weren't thinking of war and there were no conflicts that would make us think of a war. There were different narratives created by the Russian propaganda that were a part of a hybrid warfare in those days and they still use them today. But uh, nothing really, I can't think of any Ukrainians who would, who would take seriously news about war in our country. So it was quite a surprise to us, but uh, the surprise has been lasting for nine years now. So no surprise any longer, definitely so. Anyways, I usually say that military chaplaincy is a very humble ministry. You are not commanding forces, you're not a great leader, in sense a military leader. You have a very humble, but a very significant ministry. You can serve a human heart dressed in a military uniform. You can serve a human spirit that has to, to make important decisions, decisions that touch many lives. You have to be nearby, you have to be close, you have to be next to the ones you serve. And this requires a great deal of inculturation. This was my practice when I still worked as a military chaplain in the Army Academy of Ukraine. I used to run with the cadets at six in the morning. I used to, to go marches 30 miles. I was a parachute jump with parachute. So all these things, but they were always as, um, I'd say, as a desire to, to get closer, to get into the environment in order to be more, in order to make, to render your service more fruitful, in order to be more efficient in what you do. So uh, for me, there was a number of hotspots in the Ukrainian front line in those days that I uh, served as a military chaplain in, um, especially that was nearby Donetsk airport, uh, and then uh, of course Debaltsevo, and then Avdiivka, and of course then together with the Marines, it became a military chaplain of the of Marine Brigade, actually the first chaplain in the Marine Corps of Ukraine. And it was always being, we call it as chaplain's ministry of presence, but you can be abstractly present. When you're present, you know that you're present when you touch somebody's life, when you touch somebody's heart. And maybe one of the greatest possibilities that a chaplain has, and which is an essential part of his ministry, 
is to reflect to a soldier at times in very extreme context, in the context of an ex extraordinary stress, to reflect him the best part of him. And it is important, we need, we all need other people to reflect uh, the best part of us, but a mission of a military chaplain is to provide this uh, strength to the man in uniform, to the man who, who have to do maybe one of the most honorable things in the world, to defend life, family, nation. So it was a great school of learning how to serve. And uh, for me, which I also decipher as the, the essence of leadership as such, is to, to share with others what you have, to share with others your life, to make others around you stronger. This is maybe also the part of a military chaplain ministry, to make people around you stronger. When you first deployed to the trenches, what was going through your mind? What was going through your heart? These are the two important characteristics for me personally of the military chaplaincy ministry, I usually say that you have to unite people and to multiply their potential. So a military chaplain got to be, and that was exactly my, my impression when I got for the first time there, you got to be a unifier and multiplier. You got to unite people around their values, uh, around the, the things that provide sense you know, in, their, in their service but also to make them stronger, to make them believe that they can do a lot to one another and to our nation. And it was uh, important to keep in touch with reality. I usually speak of spirituality as this context with reality, and it is very, very essential. Spirituality is important in the trenches. In trenches, the world becomes real. In trenches, you don't need anything else. You don't need a social status. You don't need credit card. It's not going to help on the battlefield. What you need there is the authentic human support. What you need there is authenticity that is witnessed by your, by your comrades. You know, this, this, the spirit that unites and the spirit that makes stronger. And it wasn't, it was a variety of experiences, but definitely I mentioned already a number of times that war became an academy university for me. So it wasn't that I, I was offering service, but it was also that I learned to, to read human authenticity in the eyes of those whom I served in the eyes of the Ukrainian military. The cause was pure, the cause was clear. Uh, we were trying to, to defend the most precious things we had, our families, our lives, uh, our country. And while the world was not yet eager to pay attention to what was going on in Ukraine in 2014 and trying to, to close the eyes, we had to, to stand against the, the same, same enemy. So Russia was then strong uh, as it is today. Of course, it was a different scale. But for the first eight years of war, we lost more than 13,000 people, more than 3,000 military. And, well, the world around us wasn't quite paying attention, so that was uh, kind of a bit difficult because you had to, you, you understood that you, you had to do it by yourself, of course. And we were losing the, the best people I knew, I mean, especially in the military, especially our soldiers, Marines, our officers. So I felt that I got to be a witness to the, to the purity of their spirit, to the authenticity of, of their spirit. That's why I decided also to to write, and I published a number of books about this, maybe the first ones on the such issues in Ukraine, but to be a witness. So that was maybe a brief answer to your 
to your question, I recognized my mission in those times as to be a witness to the spirit of Ukrainian soldiers and officers. Witnessing to their spirit is kind of a higher calling. It's, it's the role of the chaplain. But how did Andri respond to moving into the trenches, to taking shellfire, to, to seeing the, day, the chaos and the destruction? That's exactly what we need to do. We need to tame chaos. Uh, and there are only two, two ways to do it on a personal level. You do it with, uh, with a sense you can read from, from what's happening around you uh, and provide the sense to those who stay next to you. And also it is important uh, to, to feel the taste. No, life has a taste. And it is so important to be a witness to life in trenches, in the battlefield, you got to feel it in little tiny things. I usually taught the, the, the soldiers to, to have these two important vectors of their, of their uh, development also on the battlefield. You got to feel the taste. You got to see the sense in what's going on. And it isn't possible to do those two things when you're all by yourself. You need others with whom you can share your ideas. You need others who can uh, provide some sense to what's going on around you to feel life. And this means to times it can be very bitter, especially I remember 2015 after the, the Balzovo. And it was a time when it was time when uh, I lost many of my young friends. And uh, when you lose a friend, uh, usually those people who are dear to us, they occupy the part of our life. And then when they leave, they take a part of us with them. So there is hollow, there is, a, there is uh, an emptiness. And this is a way for human life to be turned into, into a shadow. It was a shadowy period in my ministry. And uh, this is the great loss actually you can feel in trenches. Uh, but even this must have certain sense. You have to... This is exactly the, the, the part of our resilience to provide sense to, to chaos, to provide sense to, to pain. Pain can have sense and you have to find it. But if you are a minister, if you are a military chaplain, you have to seek a sense that can be also uh, meaningful to others. So uh, this is something that helped me to, to move uh, to trenches and to move through it. And I remember practically what I was doing. I was going from one position to another position along the front line. And uh, my Marines, uh, they were already prepared. They knew that my methodology, whenever I would get to, to, to a position, no matter what was going around, the, the, the fighting shootings, but all those who were not involved. So we would gather together and we would talk about military values, about um, uh, the spirit of a warrior. About things that make the, I'd say, the, the essence uh, that are not decorations for a military profession, but that make the spirit alive. And it was, uh, it's, like, it's like a movie scenes. It's difficult to imagine, but a position after position, one position after another position. And it was in those trenches that the spirit in the battlefield was, was alive. And it's something that cannot be limited by, by words or by, by our ideas. It's something that makes a soldier a soldier, that makes uh, a warrior a warrior. That's an important also characteristic when I talk about military. I usually I do use the word warrior because for me it's, uh, it's about our mission. And the warrior is definitely a certain type of personality. It's a person who finds enough courage to, to name the goal, to define the goal, 
who finds enough courage not to give up on the way to the goal. So it's a person committed to victory. And uh, it is important, especially in the battlefield, especially in the trenches, to define the goal and not to give up. The young soldiers would see you coming into their positions, would gather to talk. What was your interaction with the officers like? Was it any different? Not. It was quite the same. Still, uh, we're talking about armed forces, Ukrainian armed forces. And uh, military chaplaincy, as I just mentioned, was not, didn't yet have this institutional design as the American armed forces have. So uh, a military chaplain was in a position that was equal to everybody. So it wasn't a part of the military hierarchy. If you are a professional, if you have something to offer and people recognize that they need what you can offer, so it was the same, the same thing. But if you remember, I told you that I started my military chaplaincy from the Army Academy of Ukraine. So I know the officers of the armed forces, they know me, and uh, we know each other for a long period of time. That, that is part of family. So uh, no problems with the officers. What was the mix of the troops that you were ministering to? Maybe the most essential part of our ministry as military chaplains, of course, we are there to provide pastoral care. And of course, as a Catholic priest, I, I, I can do more than a Catholic priest can do. But besides the, the pastoral care, a military chaplain has a mission. And an essential part of this mission is to make a person a greater person, to help your soldiers, your uh, officers to become a greater better person in the context of chaos, in the context of combat. And this is the, the, the vocation, this is the ministry, and this is the mission that doesn't have denominational limits. So as a military chaplain, I was ministering to everybody, to those who were Catholics and, for example, needed confession or baptism, even there were cases like this. So, of course, I was a Catholic priest, but to all, I was a military chaplain, a person who was trying to reflect them the best part of their own personalities. In 2022, the Russians launched the major invasion of, of Ukraine. Did the need for chaplains change with that compared to what you saw in 2014, 2015? Of course, this is a completely different scale. The intensity of fights are very, very different. And we lose a lot. We feel a bitter pain. We, we need consolation as a nation, as the military, as the people of Ukraine. And you should also keep in mind that if Russians lose numbers, because there is an evident complete disrespect towards their soldiers and in their army, and this is maybe one of the greatest surprises of this war, I could never imagine that army can have such a disrespectful attitude towards, towards their soldiers. So uh, for us, it's a completely different story. For us, it's not only the professional army, these are the people of Ukraine who fight today for their freedom, for their lives. Uh, and among them, we have history professors, university professors, we have opera singers. We lose the nation, we lose the people who are an essential part of this society, of this country. So for us, it is important to mobilize our spirit, to, to get united and to reinforce each other. And uh, this requires a great deal of professional attitude. It requires a great number of chaplains as well. 
maybe as one of the ways it's not the only the, the only way to do the to accomplish the mission that that we have to today but still chaplains uh, nowadays become as i mentioned part of the armed forces of the institution so we get it institutionalized and there is a number defined by the minister of defense uh, the number of chaplains that have to provide pastoral care but once again this is the time of great challenges so we need a great number of committed dedicated people in any sphere in any field but especially in uh, pastoral care for the soldiers the invasion of ukraine brought russian soldiers into the homes, the villages, the towns where the soldiers you ministered to were from. You said some of your job was to help them reflect the best parts of their character. How did you do that to prevent the sense of desire for revenge or some of those darker elements of the human nature to come out? You know, a healthy personality reacts to the challenges the reality provides. And it is uh, natural and it is, I think, healthy to react with anger to what you see, for example, on the, the occupied territories. Because it was also one of the greatest, another great surprise when we got to the territories that were occupied by Russians and when we saw the, the, the torture rooms, the, the, the mass graves, the, the, the civilians uh, shot in the streets for no reasons. That's the, the, that makes it worse. There was no reason. Those people were not a threat to, 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 to Russian soldiers. Not at all. And yet, uh, we're talking about a certain demonic power that, that is fighting against life itself. Not against a nation, not against a country, but against humanity itself. Though uh, I usually emphasize this point because for me it is very important. So it, it is a healthy reaction. Anger is a healthy reaction to what you see. But to hate, to seek revenge, I usually say that it's to find yourself as a weak person in front of a strong challenge. You hate the things that you cannot change. You try to eliminate them, at least in your heart, by your hatred. This is not going to help. This will poison your heart and will confirm you in your feeling yourself helpless. But anger can be righteous. You can convert it into courage. And that's maybe the most important, the most efficient mechanism to convert your anger into courage for action. You got to act. We have to do something to stop this because it's not only a threat to Ukraine and Ukrainians, it's a threat to, to global humanity in the 21st century. When we see what Russian soldiers do today, when we analyze what they do, this is a threat to, to, to civilized society. Plus, once again, they do it for no reasons. So we got to react in a healthy way. Righteous anger means you have to convert your anger into action. In the interim of all of this, you also helped develop ethos statements for the Ukrainian Chaplains Corps. How do you live those practices? How do you inculcate those beliefs into your soldiers? I would say that the order is different. So you don't live what you write. First you live and then you find proper words to, to capture the spirit. Ethos is about a uh, verbalized spirit. So you gotta live this, you, you gotta be present there, you have to experience, and then you have to find proper words so that the others can participate in the same adventure, so that the others can feel the same spirit. And this requires, foremost, uh, it requires your authentic experience. It can be limited, it can be humble, I say, but it must be honest. 
And that's maybe one of the greatest characteristics of a military leader. You must be honest because only then others can rely on you. So it was uh, a way to first experience, to be with the soldiers in the trenches, to see what they see, to go through what they, what they go through. But then you also have to find proper, proper words to, to make them inspire. You have to find proper words to, to make the spirit alive. In your three plus years in the trenches, what was the hardest moment? The moment you had to lose your friends. So this was definitely the, the, the hardest moment. And uh, I usually call this period when you, when you feel yourself to become uh, a shadow. It's not uh, difficult to go through difficulties when you understand why. It is maybe the most important question, the answer to which offers you certain spiritual resources, the answer that makes you resilient. Maybe there is not a right one, but there is a necessity to seek an answer to this question. Why? What for? So if you know the answer to this question, or at least if you seek the answer to this question, you understand what you're doing there. And that's important. It makes your life sound, uh, f- full of senses and makes it strong. But uh, if you don't understand what, what you're doing there, everything can, can, can just uh, crumble. So once again, the difficulty was not what was going around you, but the difficulty is to lose somebody who makes part of your life, of your service, of your ministry. You earlier referred to that as having a bit of the whole put into you or taken, you know, parts of your body taken away, your soul taken away. How did your soldiers react to those situations and how did you attempt to maybe help fill that hole? I usually advise to, to my soldiers, I usually advise five important resources you know, to combat those bad spirits. And that is first, these are spiritual practices like meditation or any kind of spiritual practices that are meaningful to you. But it is important to be strong inside. And for this, you need to invest your time into your spiritual practices. But the deep one, the profound ones that help you to go deeper and to see better, to see the meaning of what's happening around you, to provide you with this resilience, spiritual resilience. Number two is our physical exercises. Your body needs uh, your attention, especially when you are needed by others. So. That's about the physical exercises. Number three, I usually say that, and it was helpful to me, so it might be helpful to others, but the books you read. Well, try to read the books that inspire. And especially if you don't have much time, at least one paragraph, that's already better than nothing. And texts provide you with the ordered emotions, so they're like coming your hair, so they're like coming your, your emotions, putting them into order, especially when you when it hurts, when the situation is difficult, when, when there's a hole in your heart. So you need to, to bring order to what you feel. And uh, reading text, reading books is one uh, of the best practices for, for such times. Number four is the music you listen to. can also inspire you, can also bring order, can also let you move and see the horizons that, uh, that are a bit hidden from, by, by, the, by the context you, you find yourself in. And number five, is the most important, the most efficient source of your strength, 
I find it in friendship, in talking to people who, who trust you, in sharing with others what you go through. So these five sources of energy, I would say, could be useful. And I mean, they, they prove themselves to be useful, definitely, in my case and in the case of those to whom I suggested them. The spiritual practices, physical exercises, the books you read, the music you listen to, and the friends you talk to. When talking to junior soldiers and talking to junior Marines about these concepts, how receptive are they and how do you put it in language and words that they understand? I like to, uh, that's important, I like to talk, uh, I like to, to tell stories, especially I refer to the, let's say, classical history, classical uh, stories from the ancient Greece or from, you know, from biblical uh, narratives. But uh, they, they have universal value, they have, you have a certain distance, they don't touch you as real history, but they are full of meaning, they, they, have, they provide you with, with, with meaning, with senses. So I use stories, and stories always help to understand things better. But plus, it is important to be, as I mentioned, an authentic witness. You, I, I speak about what I feel. And this helps. I can't have all the answers to all the questions existing in the world. I can't pretend to be superhuman. I'm limited by my human nature, my human experience. But it is a verified one. It is an honest experience that I'm aware of and that I find, find proper words to, to express, to communicate to others. The reason I'm saying this is that what's most important I, I find in uh, human communication, once again, is honesty, and especially in the military unit. As I said, in trenches, uh, neither your diplomas nor credit cards don't matter at all. What does matter is your honesty, is your authenticity. Uh, a person can feel it with his or her heart. A lot of our listeners are about to go out and take platoons for the first time or are going to be squad leaders or are squad leaders now. What advice would you have to them about the role of a chaplain and how you can support them and they can support you? The greatest thing, the greatest resources we have is our humanity. Our humanity is capable of we don't even know how much. So it's important to keep in mind. Everything begins from your heart. And uh, humanity is not an abstract concept. For me to be human, as I said, is to become yourself. But there are four important dimensions of our humanity that need to be developed, that need to be paid attention to. Well, to be human means to first seek truth, second, to choose good, third, to struggle for justice, and fourth, to contemplate beauty. I find these things essential, especially in the battlefield, especially when life becomes a battlefield. And these are the, the coordinates of our humanity. And it is the mission of a chaplain, uh, as you'll say, to, to protect humanity dressed in a military uniform. So for those who have to lead others, first of all, they should remember about this great treasure that they have. They have treasure of humanity entrusted to them. If you're a good leader, you will develop it. You will make it stronger. You will unite people and reinforce them and make them strong, empower them. And that's maybe one of the greatest things you can do 
in this world to make human spirit stronger. As a military leader, you can do this and you should do this. People could never be instruments. They should be a great treasure that you invest into your success, into our common good, into our common future. So the, but it is important to be aware of this, to be aware of the great treasure of humanity that we have in, uh, in the military, that we have in the armed forces. And uh, to be honest, that's not an important thing. If you want to let others be honest, then people will, will, be, will feel secure when they have to, to follow you, when they'll rely on you. In 2022, the war went from being just the eastern part and just Crimea and kind of stagnant to being in the living rooms and in the streets and in the markets of many cities and towns in Ukraine. How did that change for you? How did that change the war? How did that change your interaction with the population and with the soldiers? Well, first of all, uh, today in Ukraine, we live in the situation where you can't find a safe place. Nowhere in the country, the, 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 the Russian rockets arrive anywhere. And usually they, they, launch, they land uh, also anywhere. You, you, can, you can expect them anywhere, even if you're sitting in your, in your house. So uh, that's, that makes your environment a bit uh, threatening. So you can always should always keep in mind that, that the war is right here. You're part of it, and it's part of your life, of your plans, of your future, and your present. But this period of war was very surprising to us in Ukraine. And to me personally, there were two great surprises. And number one, that's the... I couldn't believe and I couldn't imagine that in the 21st century, a human being still can be so cruel and so unfree. When we witness what the Russian soldiers uh, do to to civilians, this is uh, this cannot be explained. This doesn't find uh, any any explanations. But there is another part of this surprise. I'm even more surprised of what they do to their own soldiers. Complete disrespect. They burn the bodies, and the relatives will never know what happened to their uh, to their husbands, to their sons. So it's when a state destroys a human being. That's exactly what happened to Russia. There is no a human being in, in Russia. There is a great, uh, they, they like to speak about the great society, great country, great Russia, but they don't speak about an individual. There is no human person in it. And you can see it on the, on the example of their, of their army, a complete, full, total disrespect to a soldier, to a human being. That was one surprise. And this is actually, this real, it's, it's, it is very surprising to me. Number two, there was the surprise that, uh, on the other hand, I found among our soldiers, we talk about the beginning of this stage of uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, when the whole world once again uh, was frozen, watching how a huge Russian army will, will end uh, you know, our armed forces and will occupy Ukraine. And there was no help in the beginning. So it was only us who were standing uh, against this great enemy. This is a great surprise. And this is a great source of joy, of strength. Because this was the situation where there was no reasons to survive, so to say. But it was exactly the environment in which a real hope is being born. So when you see that we can do this, this is a hope. This is a source of our hope. 
if we could do this when we were all by ourselves, so we, we can do it. Because this war is not against, once again, it's not against the country. It's not for territories. This war is against humanity. And it is very important to keep in mind. We have to win. We have to stop this. Another way, we as uh, civilized humanity of the 21st century can end in, uh, in the world where it is very scary to live in, in a very different world than the one that we used to. You talked about the destruction of the individual, of the individual identity in the Russian army. Have you interacted with Russian prisoners? Personally, no. Have the soldiers you ministered to? Of course. And how do you teach them to respect the individual that they have now taken off the battlefield? We live in the culture, this once again, this is a big difference between Russian and Ukrainian culture. We live in the culture where there is an innate respect to, to, to human being. And even if you're angry, well, you're, you can be angry, but you can respect human uh, nature of the soldier. That's, that's the, I mean, that's a mentality. That's a question of mentality. It's not the question of, of practice. Even if you're very angry, even if you see, and it's difficult, to, especially to those soldiers who came, let's say, who are, who are the first ones to go to the, the occupied territories and who see what the Russians left after themselves. So it's difficult to hold yourself. But uh, once again, we can talk about international humanitarian law, we can talk about Christian ethics, we can talk about different things. But for me, after all, it's the culture that creates an individual. So our culture has this positive attitude towards humanity and towards a human being. And this, I guess, helps us not to be turned into, to stay human, I would say. Because uh, we don't see that humanity on the other on the other side, and that's for me personally, this is maybe the first time that humanity got an empirical evidence of what an authoritarian society can do to a human individual. Because if you live in the society where freedom is not a value, where the word freedom is not being used, so you live without responsibility for your actions. If you understand that you're free, you understand that. Your actions have consequences. And if, you, if nobody taught you that you have to be free and you have to choose and you have to, to act accordingly, well, well the, only, the only imperative that stays with you is to act according to the expectations from the higher authorities and not to tell the truth, but to tell what's expected from you. And this is a moral crisis of humanity in the 21st century. We started the episode talking a little bit about St. Ignatius of Loyola. In your four years in the trenches, since the, you know, the active invasion in 2022 that the world has seen play out over the last year, have any elements of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius taken on a new meaning or a different meaning for you? Not a new and not a different, but maybe more profound, I would say, because it's important, as I mentioned, to go deeper to always become yourself. And definitely Ignatius, Ignatian spirituality was something that was providing for me a methodology in my ministry. You got to go deeper. You got to see better. It has meaning. Everything around you has meaning. And it, you have to taste life. You have to experience it. And you have to be an authentic witness to what you say. You have to be honest. So that's about Ignatian spirituality. Well, Father, I want to thank you for being a witness here today on our episode of The Spears. We, 
learned about both the war in your country, but also the role of a chaplain in ministering and taking care of the humanity of our soldiers. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.